Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wednesday morning, the 15th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. As you know, the government decided last week that the temporary eviction moratorium would end on a phased basis. And as the Taoiseach put it, as planned and previously announced from the end of March. But there has been a lot of concern that the decision not to extend the ban on evictions will lead to what opposition politicians have said will become a tsunami of people ending up homeless. Sinn Féin claims as many as 12,000 people could be evicted in the coming months. The government, on the other hand, says it made a finely balanced decision with Leo Vradker telling the doll there are pros and cons on both sides of the argument, but he said he believes the government decision will be in the overall public interest. Mr Vradker says there are three reasons for deciding to lift the ban. Uh, First of all, the moratorium was not effective in reducing homelessness. The number of homeless people being provided with emergency accommodation by the state increased every year or every month for for which the moratorium was in place. Uh, Secondly, it was beginning to create a new form of homelessness, people unable to move back into a property that they owned, unable to move a son or daughter into an apartment that they bought uh, for that purpose. Uh, 20 to 30,000 Irish citizens return home every year. Um, Most do not own their own house or apartment, but many do. Uh, And extending this uh, for another six months or another year would not have been fair or right to them. Uh, And we also extended it. And this is a crucial point uh, because we believe that leaving it in place uh, would have reduced the availability of places to rent and would have driven up rents further. Why? Because it would discourage new landlords from coming into the market, who we need, We've lost 40,000 in the past five years and may cause, once ended, uh, more and more landlords to leave. Uh, So it would have been bad for renters uh, in our assessment uh, to extend uh, this eviction ban, especially those uh, moving uh, or those seeking to rent for the first time. The Taoiseach, Leo Radker, speaking in uh, the Dáil last week. Let's speak to local Sinn Féin TD for me, the Starren O'Rourke, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. By its own admission, the government says people are going to end up homeless and will begin becoming homeless from the beginning of next month when the ban is lifted. Uh, and you've been looking at the figures, and there's some indication, as we've been hearing this morning on LMFM's news, as what that as to what that will mean locally. In County Louth, there's 96 eviction notices pending and in County Mead, 127 notices. Uh, And undoubtedly, there's more people than the 96 or 127 living in in, uh, those uh, places of accommodation. Absolutely, that's the the, the case. Uh, We have the figures for the notices of termination received by the RTB um, in Q3 of, of 2022, that's the, the July to September period. Um, so we know that there are those outstanding notices to quit, as you said, 127 in County Mead and 96 in, in County Louth. Um, we know that there are more that have have been issued after that. 
Um, and it is, you know, it, it is a clear mm. indication that um, uh, that very many people, as we already knew, uh, were on notice to quit and are facing impending eviction. Um, and they don't. But does that have mean a, in about a fortnight from now, two hundred people in County Louth and about two hundred and fifty people in County Mead will end up becoming homeless? Well, well, we know, and, and you heard from from the Taoiseach there in terms of the the range of of uh, reasons that they gave for lifting the uh, ev- eviction ban, and, and I, I think every element of it um, can be questioned. For example, that it didn't reduce homelessness, um, or that homelessness increased uh, over the months of the ban. But of course, we know that in the region of twenty seven hundred uh, households were protected by the eviction ban itself. Um, this issue of new forms of homelessness, the the, the number of people coming pro, from abroad, coming home, uh, who, who couldn't uh, go into their, their their own property. There's there's no figure on that. There's there's no... Well, there, there, there's, a, there, there, there's a figure on the amount of people who return home every year, and that's twenty to 30,000. Yeah, How many absolutely. of them want to return to the property that they own uh, is a different question. Yeah, a, a different question entirely. And also, it's, it's, a, it's a measure that the, co- the government could have addressed if they had accepted a, a Sinn Féin... A, amendment to the to the legislation and also the piece in terms of driving landlords out and not attracting landlords. But it's very clear that landlords have been uh, driven out of the market and are leaving the market in in droves over the last number of years. It's clear... 40,000 in the last five years, apparently. Absolutely. And and it's clear from from speaking with with local estate agents and being reported widely in in the media that that's going to continue. It's going to continue now with the the lifting of this eviction ban. And, And it is the case to say that there's no... Uh, uh, additional uh, landers been attracted into the market and the government are doing nothing in relation to that either. I, I also think it's worth pointing out this kind of um, you know, scattergun uh, defence of the, 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 this measure by government because it wasn't just those measures that they, that they uh, uh, pointed to. They also pointed to attorney, advice from the Attorney General um, we, we see in the newspapers at the weekend that it may have been considerations in relation to the electoral impact of lifting of the eviction ban, whether, whether this was, was done uh, now rather than uh, next year because of the, the local and European elections. But one okay. thing... But, but we'll talk about that issue. Are you only de- de- delaying the inevitable, whether it's uh, <laughs> being... Uh, t- a decision that's taken now uh, for electoral reasons, uh, but I, I suppose... It's the same point uh, that people will either be evicted now or in January or February of next year. Uh, and that may be bad for the government uh, electorally, but is it not inevitable, in other words? No, it's, see, it's not inevitable. It's not inevitable because the the ban on evictions needs to be one element of a suite of measures that the government should introduce and should have introduced when they introduced the eviction ban uh, initially. And that is, the eviction ban is about what? It's not a permanent measure. It could never be a permanent measure. But it's about providing a breathing space to introduce emergency rapid response to to try and, in the first instance, uh, protect those people who are at risk of eviction. Um, and in the second instance, to ramp up the, the delivery of social and affordable homes. Because yeah. it, it, for me, it's absolutely incredible in my life in politics and, and, and looking at politics that we have a government decision here that knowingly, consciously is going to increase 
the amount of homelessness. And in the week since this decision has been uh, made, not one government spokesperson has been able to answer the question, where will these people go? And that, for me, is just the stuff of... of uh, it's absolutely incredible to me. And to me, it's a, a reflection yeah. of a government, successive governments, that clearly, in my opinion do not know how to solve this crisis that they created. And, and at the, but it's probably true to say that they won't have to go anywhere at all because if you're being served with an eviction notice uh, and if it's because the landlord wants to sell, uh, the local authority might end up buying that house off the landlord and you can stay living in it. But the devil will be, be in the detail in relation to that. So, so, so my sense at the minute, um, and the circular was issued to local authorities yesterday in relation to the implementation of this. My, um, my sense is that that won't cover a fraction of the people who are faced with notices to quit because well, of the fifteen hundred homes. So it's so so we just gave the example there of of ninety six yeah. in Loud and 127 in Mead. So, the, so of the 1,500 uh, units in, uh, th- that are to be uh, delivered in this tenant in situ, um, 40 of them will be, uh, in the region of 40, will be delivered in, in Mead and 30 in Loud. So that goes nowhere near covering the amount of people who are already faced with notices to, to, to quit. But also bear in mind, there are criteria that apply there. So in my opinion, no, not, not, not in my opinion, it's a statement of fact to say the stars have to align perfectly for you to be mm. eligible for that tenant in situ scheme. So for example, such matters as how long you're in the property, how long you're on the housing list, are you in a receipt of HAP, are you overhoused, have you a spare room? If you have a spare room, that, that, that ha- you're, you're not eligible to buy, to buy that house. Is the, the price of the house on the market uh, within, within, uh, uh, within reason? Um, so there's a whole pile of, of reasons uh, why, and we've had, bear in mind, mm. we've had the tenant in situ scheme uh, since last April. Mead County Council has acquired one property under it and their sale agreed on another. Um, we know in other local authorities in the region of uh, over in South Dublin County Council, where, where uh, South Dublin County Council, over a hundred properties were offered to, to that local authority, and only a handful were, were procured. And okay. The same right so, so, so the, the the plan here is that the government is going to buy fifteen hundred homes that go up for sale from landlords, but your contention is that that's just not going to be realised. Well, it it may be realised. Um, it may be realised, but if it is realised, um, it's only a fraction of people um, that, that that are facing with eviction. Man. So it's not, it's it's not. So the first one of the first things that we're looking for is uh, uh, one to, to realise the fifteen hundred. Um, the the normal uh, uh, um, purchasing arrangements, the normal allocation arrangements. So that point I gave you there of. Um, uh, whether whether there's a spare room in the, the home, for example. So uh, um, that wouldn't be eligible for tenant in situ a purchase at the minute. It should be. If, mm-hmm. if the, the house is a reasonable cost and in a reasonable condition and there's a, a reasonable uh, um, a fa- family household in it, well, then the, 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 def- the default position should be that the council should be acquiring those properties. So essentially what I'm saying is, and what Sinn Féin is saying, that the normal allocation policy should be parked in relation to this tenant in situ. So the default should be acquire those properties. If they do that, 
they'll meet that 1500. If they don't, they won't meet that 1500. The other thing they need to do is yeah. expand the criteria. So they need to go beyond the 1500 to, to those people because there's a huge amount of people that aren't on HAP, that aren't on RAS, um, that aren't on, on a, a housing support. Um, so they don't qualify for that tenant in situ scheme. But we have, for example, uh, another scheme in terms of cost rental where the household income can be up to €53,000. So you're getting no housing support. You're in the private rented sector. And we believe in Sinn Féin that the tenants in situ scheme should be extended to that cohort as well. So of the uh, mm-hmm. um, of the thousands of people who are faced with eviction notices of the 127 plus 96 in Louth and Mead, um, that would go a, a lot further to, to uh, supporting them. And also at the end of it then, you have a situation where the housing stock in public ownership, whether it be from the local authorities or for the the, uh, the associated housing bodies, that that stock is increased as landlords are going to do what they're already doing, which is leaving the market. OK, can you balance this decision uh, to buy 1,500 homes and to continue to rent them out to the people, the landlords had been letting them to, against this other decision to end the long-term leasing scheme, which is a scheme that was in place where the local authority, the county council, could lease houses off landlords and then rent them out to tenants. That's to end. Yeah, and um, no, it's like, again, you know, it's, it's, it's a policy incoherence, uh, uh, Michael, because uh, uh, ultimately what we want, and, and this is what Sinn Féin is, is saying in, a, in our um, motion for, for this, this week, or for, for the next week when the dollar returns, is to extend the emergency ban on evictions, to expand the tenant and situ scheme, both for, as I said, for social housing and for affordable cost rental, and then to use the next six, uh, up until the end of January next year, to, to use emergency planning and procurement powers to drive up the cost, uh, to, to drive up the delivery of social and affordable homes. So, so to bring vacant units back in, uh, to deliver on, like we've been listen, listening listening to it for so long. I met a, a, a provider of um, uh, modular units in Retoat last week and he's scratching his head wondering you know, why he's not, why, why the government aren't knocking, knocking the door down um, to deliver those type of units. Uh, um, we know that they can be d- delivered rapidly on public land uh, if the government uh, used the powers that, that, they, that they can, like, for example, they did uh, during, during COVID. During COVID, there was an emergency response. For this housing emergency, there is not emergency response. There is a business-as-usual response, and business-as-usual simply won't cut it. And I give that example in terms of the, the tenant-in-situ scheme, in terms mm-hmm. of the housing allocation scheme, in terms of the social and affordable housing delivery scheme. They're nowhere near, near where they need to be, and uh, that's why we believe the eviction ban needs to be extended uh, to provide that breathing space and to introduce an emergency response. All right, we have to leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today. That's Sinn Féin TD for me, the East, Darren O'Rourke. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, there's 350 fewer Gardaí in this country than there were back in 2020, three years ago. Uh, there's actually just 14,100 Gardaí in the country. And that compares to a target of a force which would be of a size 
tens of 15,000. 800 Gardaí were promised in the last budget, but so far just 300 have been delivered. Another 1,000 are promised for the year ahead. Uh, but uh, the GRA is estimating it'll be lucky if it sees another 800 recruits this year. Let's speak now to Tara McManus, who is uh, the Assistant General Secretary of uh, the Garda Representative Association. And uh, a very good morning to you once again, Tara, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme here. The problem seems to be that Gardaí are resigning far quicker than they can be recruited, with resignations up some 170% in the last five years. Is that indicative of the low morale that there is in the force? Good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Um, It's very much connected to a whole plethora of reasons, but uh, low morale is something that we are very concerned about. Um, Last week, the commissioner was on a different radio station and he was interviewed in relation to, to, to various issues within the force. One of the questions he was asked uh, was, is there a morale issue within Angarda Siakana? And he answered by saying, no, our members are just tired from COVID. Now, that particular statement has really annoyed uh, our membership uh, because morale is absolutely on the floor. Um, and I have spoken to you about this uh, on previous occasions, and there's a whole range of reasons for that. Um, there's less guards to do more work. Uh, the rising number of assaults is a problem. Um, pay and pensions does does feature but it's not a main concern um, the the uncertainty around our rosters I mean that's a, an issue that just continues to rage on and rage on and the Commissioner has now referred that particular issue into the WRC uh, the GRA are quite concerned about that because we feel that the internal conciliatory process hasn't been fully exhausted and we have written to the Commissioner pointing this out and asking that he returns to negotiations because we do firmly believe a middle ground can be found where both the Commissioner and our membership will be happy. But in relation to the morale, um, I note that particular uh, article states that Angardishi Connor are going to roll out exit interviews in the coming weeks and months. Um, it's bizarre that an, associ- an organisation that has lost 109 members last year haven't already been conducting exit interviews as a matter of policy the GRA, we started our own exit interviews a number of weeks ago and I've actually been tasked with that particular job and I have been going around the country over the last couple of weeks and I've been sitting down and I've been talking to some of these people who left in the last 12 months and honestly, Michael, the stories I'm hearing back are so sad, they are so difficult to listen to um, with one particular word being used on a number of occasions to describe the working conditions and that word is toxic and as somebody myself with 24 years service, to hear that that word being used to describe the working conditions of a guard, the atmosphere in a station, um, that's really alarming. But it's really sad to, to think that our guards are going into work and believe that their working conditions and their work environment is toxic. And is that across the board? Yeah, I've interviewed about 15, 16 so far. And um, although they might act, mightn't all use that particular word, that's the general consensus that comes back. That it's just but that highlights a cultural problem, does it not? Uh, I mean, that indicates a, a culture of bullying and lack of respect if it's toxic. Uh, 
none of them really use the word bullying as such, and they would be highly, um, highly complimentary of the of their guard colleagues, and they would say that they had good support in the unit from their guard colleagues. But okay. They all described a lack of insight from senior management that they feel senior management are completely out of touch with what is happening on the ground. Right. Toxic is a, a particular word or a peculiar word, though, to use uh, for bad management. Well, yeah, I suppose it, it, it feeds into it. Um, they talk about, you know, not having the basic resources like cars not being available, paper not being available. Um, they talk about going into kitchens and there being no cups, no knives, no forks for you to have your dinner, no lockers, um, guards going in and out to work, bringing their gear in and out of gear bags, uh, not having facilities to get changed. So, I mean, basic you know, human rights that we would we would expect to have. And some of these guards have actually left and gone into other public sector jobs. So if anyone was to say, oh, well, this is unique to the public sector, it is not. It seems to be unique to Angarda Kona. Uh, and why is that the case, do you think? Is it a lack of investment or uh, uh, simply poor management, as mentioned earlier? Well, I mean, I don't think it's a lack of investment because, you know, you can see in the budget every year there's a huge amount of money that is allocated towards Angarda Siakona. We would say it's been used for um, piloting new policies, new procedures, new work methods, uh, which fall under this building momentum programme, which is, is designed to improve how we do our job. But at the moment, it's creating double jobbing. So, for instance, one of those uh, systems is called the RDMS which is a system where when you come into work, you log on via the pulse or via mobility device to say, I'm here, I'm at work. Um, so you'd imagine, well, that, that covers those particular guards, but they don't. At the end of the month, they still have to fill in a paper-based form actually outlining what their duties were. So that's double jobbing because they're doing the same job twice. And there's a lot mm. of other examples of, of other policies, procedures, programmes that have been brought in. One other example is if, if you witness a car accident, we'll say, 20 yards outside your local guard station and you go in and you knock on the counter and you say, how are you guard? There's a, a traffic accident out there on the street. You know, can one of you go out for it? That member of the public will be asked by the guard, can you please ring 999 and ring the command and control centre? Because I cannot um, attend to that call unless I have been directed to do so by command and control. Instead of that guard saying, absolutely no problem, I'll head on out there. We Mm. cannot go to a call unless we have been directed to do so by the command and control system. Really? Yes. So that person cannot, we we can't, you know, that, that member of the public has to then stand back in the public office and ring 999 and log the call, even though they've just spoken to a guard at the counter. So that sort of double job and oversight, um, you know, ridiculous processes that just haven't been thought through um, mm. are creating serious problems. And that member of the public is then standing waiting for the guard to actually officially receive the call to go out and deal with traffic accidents right. 20 yeah, hours. And le- le- left unresponded too. Unless they try again uh, through a a different route. I take it that uh, a lot of the people leaving the force are taking early retirement. Are there young recruits who are leaving? Because there's uh, a text in asking if young recruits would come back if conditions changed. That's one of the questions I actually pose in my exit interview. Uh, On what conditions would you come back? And they all laugh and go, none. They are much happier in, in the positions that you're in now. And you talked about um, um, retirement there. I'm actually on my way at the moment down to Templemore to present to a pre-retirement course. 
the Garda College are inundated with requests for this particular course. So this is a course that's ran out to members who are considering retirement. You know, they go through the financial aspects of, of what happens when you retire and the various things you have to have in place. The demand for that is absolutely out the door. Um, so I'm finding myself down in Templemore every couple of weeks presenting to these people who want to retire and who want to retire early. And there is um, a, a package there where you can buy back service. So, for instance, people that so many years ago went out, went out on the streets as student guards for six months mm. can now buy that six months back as service, which means they can retire with 29.5 years service. And again, this is a new phenomenon. People are buying back their service so that they can leave a 25, or sorry, 29 and a half year service. And in order to do that, then they're looking to go on this pre-retirement course. So the demand for that is unprecedented. We've never seen such a high demand for the pre-retirement course either. So this is all indicative of what's happening. We have all these early retirements. We have all these um, early resignations. And we're we're just not meeting the demand for the guards coming into the Garda College. Okay, uh, you mentioned uh, the problem that you have with uh, rosters. You represent rank and file Gardaí and the Garda Representative Association. Senior officers also have a, a problem with rosters, uh, as we've seen with uh, the AGSI, uh, the sergeants and inspectors protesting uh, to the Garda HQ and talk of another blue flu. Uh, does that uh, reflect uh, the level of uh, disquiet that there is amongst the rank and file? Yeah, I mean, we, we haven't decided to take any sort of action like that at the moment. Um, our, our annual delegate conference is due to take place in a number of weeks. So I suppose any actions or, or any next steps will be discussed at that with all the delegates in the room who represent all the membership. Um, but there is that frustration and there, there is that level of uncertainty. I mean, the, the roster has been extended now till September, but just the beginning of mm. September. So it does cover the summer period. But again, I'm very conscious of members who are going, you know, have young children going back to school in September. Even at this stage, they're trying to organise childcare. They can't because they do not know what way yeah. they're going to be working past the beginning of September. OK, but many of us would be very concerned at the idea of Gardaí going on strike, regardless of what name is put on that type of industrial action, blue flu or otherwise. Uh, and uh, it's also very uh, discomforting for a lot of us to watch members of the force protest publicly the way we did last week. Uh, you're often asked to police protests uh, how would members of the GRA respond if you were asked to protest an AGSI protest? Or to, to mark on? Well, we would like to think there wouldn't be any public order incidents at, at an AGSI protest. In fairness, there are colleagues um, and, you know, they, they, they conduct themselves with the decorum and the respect um, that you would expect from them. And that's exactly what happened last week. Um, so, you know, we wouldn't be concerned about that at all. Um, but, yeah, look, it, it is something that our... Some members are calling for, uh, look, we're not going down that road yet. We, we firmly believe that this is something that needs to be, you know, sorted out by sitting around the table, by negotiating, mm. by, discuss, by discussions. I mean, the last blue flu... That but doesn't that make the point, Tara, of uh, the question mark that is always posed uh, about members of a police force protesting or taking industrial action or uh, going uh, uh, into some sort of industrial dispute with its employer, which is the government, because they're both arms of democracy. 
Yeah, and look, we, we, as, as, as a force, we have never taken that action. You know, as I said, the blue flu that happened many, many years ago, I think it was back in 1998. I was a very, very young card at the time. So there hasn't been any other industrial action and it really is a last resort uh, okay. for, for any association, but particularly for us as members of Vanguard Shikana, our first priority is the members of the public that we look after, the community that we serve, that we protect, and that is always our priority. So in a, a, in a form of industrial action, to be quite honest, from the, the talks we've had around the table the last couple of weeks, it hasn't even come up for conversation because it's not something that we want. It's not the road we want to go down. It's not something we want to engage in. We still firmly believe this can be sorted by talking around the table. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you for talking to us today. That is Tara McManus, who is uh, the Assistant General Secretary of the GRA, the Garda Representative Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. Today is World Consumer Rights Day, which uh, the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission is marking by publishing its contacts report for 2022. This outlines that many queries and complaints uh, that it received from some 32,431 consumers over the course of uh, the last year. Let's speak to Grania Griffin, who's uh, the communications director with uh, the CCPC. And a very good morning to you, Grania, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. That's a a lot of people making contact with you, a lot of consumers who have a lot of complaints or queries, as uh, the case may be. And I I take it that covers uh, a vast uh, area and many different areas of that. That's right. It's um, Consumers get in touch with us about all sorts of things, all sectors, all kind of issues. But there's definitely some things that really come to the top. So, for example, faulty goods and services, that's absolutely the thing people get in touch with um, most often. And then vehicles and transport is the most common sector that we see. And a lot of that is to do with secondhand cars. Mm, indeed, you give some examples. Uh, Amaliki uh, is one person who came to you with a second-hand car that had a, a six-month warranty, uh, but after three weeks, he noticed a strange noise. That's right, and that's quite common that people will buy a second-hand car and then some issue emerges and then they want to know what their rights are. And different businesses may say, oh, well, this length of warranty or this length of guarantee. And what we'd say to people is actually, under your consumer rights, you are really well protected for actually up to six years after you've bought something. And that is tiered. So for the first 30 days after you've bought something, you have a very strong right to simply go back and say this is faulty or it's not as described and get a refund. And even after that 30 days has expired, you can still go back on the basis of your statutory rights, regardless mm. of any guarantees or warranties that might also be in place. All right. Uh, regardless of terms and conditions. Well, the terms and conditions are something you'll always have to pay attention to, but traders can't write away your your consumer rights, if that makes sense. They can't write into the terms and conditions that these don't apply. You're always going to have the right to go back and say, this is faulty, you sold it to me, and now you need to put that right. The terms and conditions uh, can't uh, be at odds with uh, legislation, and under the Consumer Rights Act, Maliki had his uh, car repaired for him at no cost. Absolutely. And like if somebody, if something is faulty, it should be put right at no cost to the consumer, but also at no inconvenience to the consumer. So if you go back and say, for example, you're like, this is faulty, I'd like it repaired. You can't be left waiting now for weeks or months waiting for it to be repaired. It has to be done as soon as possible without inconveniencing you and at no cost to you. Okay. Um, 
Uh, how do you resolve it uh, if, uh, let's say, you're talking to a car dealer who says, well, I'm just not going to comply with that? So you complain. The first thing you do is you find out what your rights are. You go back to the trader and you, and you put that complaint to them. And if they don't listen to you verbally, you put it to them in writing and you create a paper trail of you going back saying, look, this is my issue. And then if you don't get anywhere with the trader, then you have two options. Firstly, you check to see if they're registered, like if there is a kind of a regulator or or any sort of industry body that has a complaints process over them. So, for example, in the motor industry specifically, um, SIMI are a body that some garages will be registered with. But if you don't have a regulatory body, then you go to the small claims court, if possible, to try and get your issue resolved. And even if you're pursuing it yourself, we'd still also say, do let us know about any traders that you're having issues with. Because where we see like either repeat offenders or very serious offenders in terms of breaches of competition law, we ourselves, as the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission, can step in and take a case against a trader. Okay, well, that's what I was working towards because a lot of that would sound very complicated to to a lot of people and maybe just too much trouble in some cases, but you can represent people, can you? We don't represent them as such. We actually take a case on behalf of everybody in Ireland against certain traders. Like we act nationally, but not on behalf of any specific traders. When a consumer has an issue, the idea is that hopefully our information and our advice can empower them with the information that they need to take a case against the trader. And then if they need to go further, that they are able to. Now, in terms of routes for consumer redress, like there's definitely areas we would like to see improvements in. Like we refer a lot of people to the small claims court but we're very aware that most of those people don't actually take cases to the small claims court and while hopefully that's because they got it all resolved with the trader it might also be because they were put off by the 25 euro application fee or they found it a bit daunting and we think there's more that could be done there to make the the small claims court a better option for consumers and to allow it to accept more claims. Um, on the other hand, am I right in thinking that uh, sometimes the trader will uh, comply with the law if they're in breach of the law once you mention the small claims court? Absolutely. I mean, our experience is, is that most businesses out there are trying very hard to comply with the law and, you know, they're, they're doing their best to meet all of their requirements. And if you go back and point it out, it generally will be resolved. I mean, we are in a world where consumer reviews and, and businesses' reputations are very, very important to them. So we do find that businesses put a lot of work into maintaining those reputations and being seen to comply with the law at every opportunity. Okay, you were busy over the course of uh, the last year with the exit of Ulster Bank and KBC and indeed uh, a a lot of people looking at uh, their mortgages and their options uh, as a result of that. We did. The website was very, very busy and really the money tools and our comparison tools drove that. Like we saw over 600,000 uses of those money tools and two one, two different comparison tools really stand out. One was the current account one and again that's just Ulster Bank, KBC leaving the market, consumers having to switch current account probably for the first time in their life and needing to find out what's available and then the other one is mortgages. And mortgages are, when you look at the research, mortgages stand out as if you're going to switch any product that you have the one where you can have the most to save and where there really is money on the table is switching mortgage and that's even with the increase in interest rates it can still be possible to get better value for your mortgage if you haven't moved recently 
Okay, unscrupulous traders depend on people not exercising their rights is the message from uh, the CCPC. But if you don't know your rights, uh, you can be informed of them uh, because you've uh, many ways of uh, that people can contact you uh, through ccpc.ie and uh, there they'll find your uh, email and your phone number and so on. That's right. We'd encourage any consumer to give us a ring. Our phone number is 01402 but the website ccpc.ie is your starting point for any information on your consumer rights. Gronia Griffin, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, today. Communications Director with the CCPC. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, I wanted to thank Mary, who was in touch with us yesterday, saying that she believes there's going to be a spike in the number of COVID cases after this weekend. If you take into account all of the sporting events, special occasions, the parades and everything, Mother's Day falling all in the same weekend. People, she says, really have thrown caution to the wind at this stage when it comes to COVID. But Dr. Scully on the programme yesterday said, it hasn't gone away yet and Mary says that's very true Well, it is very true which is why I'm at home once again today and uh, I wanted to thank all of the people who were in touch yesterday with well wishes uh, because I've got COVID that's why I'm at home (laughs) I'm at work but I'm not in work because I have to isolate for seven days because as Mary and Dr Scully said it hasn't gone away yet And that certainly is uh, the very weird truth uh, from my perspective at the moment. But as I say, I wanted to thank everybody who was in touch with us yesterday. I'm not sure if we've uh, any or many calls today because uh, working remotely, I'm sure uh, they'll come through in the next couple of minutes. But if you would like to make comment on the programme today, our telephone number is 041-983-2000. That's 041-983-2000. You can text or WhatsApp us on 086-1800-658 or email Michael at lmfm.ie Now another call that came to us yesterday was from Davy, who had been listening to the reports on LMFM's news about the amount of learner drivers who have been given penalty points for driving unaccompanied. So Davy says he appreciates that they shouldn't be driving on their own but they've no choice given the ridiculously long waiting times for driving tests. His son has been on a waiting list for a test for nearly two months hugely frustrating for him he says and others have an invitation to apply for a test when they will then enter into the system and have to wait god knows how long before they get a date the backlogs are ridiculous and government isn't doing enough to deal with the problem well related to that is uh, the problem in drada which has been raised by many of uh, the local representatives there's a lot of concern Uh, the decision to close uh, the test centre in Marion Park after being located there over the course of the last two years. And we can hear once again now what the Taoiseach, Leo Bradger, had to say about that situation in the Dáil last week. A commitment was given last year to close the test centre in Marion Park in Drada by the end of February this year as the lease expired. The site was always a temporary solution while uh, the RSA tried to find a more suitable location and that work is ongoing. The RSA has reviewed several options in the area, but to date hasn't found a suitable alternative location. It's important that the site of a test centre itself uh, does not in itself create unnecessary disruption for local communities, uh, particularly in counties Loud and Meath. 
That's uh, the Taoiseach, Leo Radker. Let's go to the phones now. Mags Russell is a driving instructor based in Drada. Good morning, Mags, and thanks for joining us. Uh, there's a, a lot of people who have been discommoded. Uh, good morning, Michael. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, I hope you have a speedy recovery. Oh, I'm not sick. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> That's why I'm working today. But uh, thank yeah. you very much indeed for your good wishes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, in terms of the test centre, it was always mentioned as being a temporary test centre, you know, but um, yeah. having two years to find a location is kind of, you know, a lengthy time to find uh, a driving test centre, a permanent site. You know, as you yeah. know yourself, like uh, the amount of um, premises that could be used. For example, you have a driving test centre in Mulhudrid, which is a basic porta cabin with 10 spaces, parking spaces, and tests are conducted from that site there. So that could have been a possibility for Drada also. Um, the the waiting times, it's just crazy. Like I've had people, students, who have been waiting a year, year and a half for a test. And now right. like once they get shifted to uh, Navin or Dundalk, um, they'll probably get a quick invite when they weren't expecting it. It's yeah, but it's a very different thing doing your test in Navan or in Dundalk. Uh, if you've been learning in Drogheda, you don't know exactly. the roads, you don't know the route. Uh, and It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Your spatial awareness is tested big time. You know, I'd have a lot of nervous drivers who would get to a level where they're only starting to get comfortable driving in the town. And then before they know it, then they put, put through the extra anxiety and stress then. Um, I know a lot of people who are driving 10 and 20 years uh, and they're grand once they're in their comfort zone. But if they uh-huh. have to go somewhere that they don't know, if they don't know junctions and some junctions can be uh, more challenging than others or whatever the case may be, uh, they can be very, very um, put off by it all. Yeah. Um. Like, I think that, you know, it's crazy to think that, you know, you wouldn't shut a shop with a queue of customers outside queuing up. And that, that queue was 2,700 for mm. the drop the driving test centre. I yeah. mean, imagine the NCT pulling the NCT centre from Drogheda with a backlog from till the end of the year. 
It's more the Road like Safety Authority gave us all the impression that this was the fault of the residents. Uh, what's your yeah. understanding of that? I think it's really unfair to place the blame on residents. Um, there was meeting between residents and the RSA. I do think that um, there should have been an opportunity for a driving instructor from the community to even represent and even mediate any concerns that the residents had. For one example, they had an issue of maybe uh, driving schools parking on the road, bringing more traffic. Um, it could have been mediated, the fact that we could have parked into the test centre, but only travelling into that area when we had mm. someone on test, not just for other lessons, you know? No. Uh, one of uh, the reasons given uh, to local TD Jed Nash by the Road Safety uh, Authority, Mags, was that Drogheda is too busy a town to be learning how to drive in. Um, Drogheda is a busy town. You do have a population of 46,000 and uh, that just doesn't include Drogheda town itself. It extends down to Betty's town, Laytown, and Julian's town. You have people from Balbergen. I've had students from Balbergen to Mullen coming to travel to do uh, a test. But I think that there's definitely, a, there would have been tenable locations even around Fantasia, um, there's kind of car parks there. You know, all they had to do was lay mm. the level, um, do some car spaces, maybe some kind of a, a, a temporary building, nothing too big. But they did also announce, this, which is interesting, in December that they had identified a new location. And mm. then all of a sudden, then three months later, the rug was just literally pulled. Okay. Um, I'm not sure what location that was uh, and maybe you can come back that, to that in a moment uh, but uh, the idea of Drada being too busy just seems ludicrous to me. I'd have thought the busier the town was, the more traffic in a town, the better for someone who's learning to drive because that's the greatest challenge and that's what you want to achieve. I, I mean, people are learning how to drive in all of the big cities, whether that's in Rome or in London and if you can learn how to drive in Rome or London why can't you learn how to drive in Drada? That's a very valid point, Michael. Um, and I think that you can't be driving on back roads all the time. You need to be put into these traffic situations. You need to learn. A learner has to learn all different types of uh, situations, hazards, you know, traffic situations. Mm. It's just like you said there, you know, you need to kind of have that experience to be built to drive anywhere. Mm. I always remember my dad telling me that he drove, the first time he drove a car was with a friend of his uh, back in the old days uh, when you wouldn't have had driving instructors and all of that. But it was at half five on a Friday evening in O'Connell Street and he said, you soon <laughs> learned how to drive. <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't advise anybody to do that now. I mean, that was obviously a long time ago, but uh, I, I think you understand uh, the points that uh, I'm making. Uh, another uh, thing that was said about this decision that the Road Safety Authority has taken to reallocate essentially to Dundalk is that it's invested so much in Dundalk that this is a commercial decision. Yeah, I have heard now. Um, myself and a few of my fellow ADIs had met with Jed Nash last week and, you know, we believe that, you know, with the, the new test centre in Dundalk, that there's plenty of uh, free table space there for testers. But it's not even ideal for even the driving testers because I was speaking to one of the driving testers there before it closed and he had to make the extra commute of 40 minutes on uh, the motorway from Dublin. Mm. Um, but also, um, yeah, another point, sorry, Michael, is about what kind of, you know, uh, is it feasible to expect learner drivers but also driving instructors to make the extra journey 
Well, I was just going to ask you, how do they do that? I mean, you're not... Yeah, but you're not to drive unaccompanied. Uh, so how do you get to Dundalk or Navin to take your oh, test? If A typical situation for a driving instructor is if uh, a learner doesn't have a, a sponsor driver, an accompanied driver, to bring them to the test centre to do any pre-test to prepare for their driving test. They'll have to go and ask a, a driving instructor to accompany them, which is double the lesson fee for the learner, which is, in the cost of living crisis, it's, it's hardly ideal. Mm. How much would that cost? Uh, typical driving lessons at the moment will be anywhere from 45 to 50 euro. Mm. But it'd be at least double that, if not triple. It's, well, you'd, you'd want about two hours because it's half an yeah. hour um, to uh, Dundalk if you're from the town itself, the city, or not the city, the centre of the town. But it's half an hour from uh, the centre of Trotter then to Navin. But that's not to mention, like, you know, where each mm. driving instructor could be living. Like, I know some driving instructors live in Leytown, Baytown. So that's an extra 15 minutes on their time. Okay. So, yeah, well, and you also pay to take the test as well. Uh, so that's yeah, but an, one an of the valid points I have as well, Michael, is yeah. Yeah. Uh, during COVID, you know, we, healthcare professionals were prioritised. They were given uh, tests quick enough because they were recognised as frontline workers. But now the test centre has been taken away from Drada. Where does that leave these professionals? Hmm. I know that there's 27 driving instructors uh, who speak regularly through WhatsApp, and you're one of them, of course, Mags. And, am, yeah. uh, that, uh, and that there's a, a lot of disquiet, and you, you would like to do something to bring uh, about enough pressure uh, to reinstate the centre in Drogheda. And you're asking yeah. people listening to us uh, this morning to support you in doing that. Yeah, we're, we're a group of 27, uh, actually heading to 30 uh, instructors in this WhatsApp group. Now, nothing interesting happens in it. It's usually about like just traffic conditions and stuff like that. But we're making plans of uh, getting together, having a meet-up, and we're hoping to kind of do, do uh, make plans to kind of be heard from a driving instructor's point of view, but also for learner drivers. You know, it's just not right that we don't have a test centre in the town that we'd have, have, we have the size of, so... Yeah, we're hoping um, and encourage learner drivers, if they're not happy, they paid €85 Euro for a driving test. So that, therefore, makes them a customer of the RSA. If they're not happy with the test centre being pulled, I'd encourage them to let it be known and um, pick up the phone, email, call whoever they need, or even ask their driving instructor, what can they do to help us get this back? Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's an awful lot of people, as you said. So possibly the best way of making your voice known is through your driving instructor, is it? Yeah, we really have to kind of lean on and just mm. let the RSA know this is not acceptable. Okay. We need this. All right, Max, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, there's a, a lot of people who <laughs> agree with you, quite obviously. Uh, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us today. And uh, I'm sure we'll come back to this issue in the coming days and weeks. Mags Russell, driving instructor in Drogheda there. Now, some of uh, the comments that have come to us today, and thanks to Paul, who's been in touch with us about the eviction ban, saying people who are given an eviction notice should simply refuse to move out and continue to live on in the property and continue to pay the rent. They can't evict everyone, he says. 
Uh, that's uh, bordering on anarchy, of course, Paul. Uh, Sarah in touch with us about driving tests, and she says she totally agrees with the comment earlier about the waiting times to get a test. Her daughter is in the same boat as that man's son, and it is as frustrating for her and her daughter. She finds it tough going to find someone to accompany her all of the time, and it's a problem that many of our friends are facing as well. Well, thank you indeed, Sarah, uh, for getting in touch with us today. We'd love to hear from you if you want to make comment on the programme. Our telephone number is 041 Text us or WhatsApp us on 86 658 Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. If you were listening to us yesterday, you know we were hoping to speak uh, to Sean Healy of Social Justice Ireland about the Apple tax ruling. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen on the programme yesterday, but we will talk to Sean now in a moment because this is an issue that is going to be resolved once and for all, or finally, if you like, on the 23rd of May by the European Court of Justice because it's a story that dates back seven years or nine years, uh, because in 2016, the European Commission concluded an investigation into the tax arrangements uh, that the Apple Corporation had been enjoying in this country. It was a two-year investigation into a variation of the so-called double Irish tax system, which Apple was using to shield a whopping 110.8 billion euro in profits that it made outside of the United States from being taxed. Now, the EU Commission's investigation concluded that Ireland granted illegal tax benefits to Apple. And we'll remind ourselves once again of what the then Commissioner Margrethe Besteher had to say about it. This means that Apple's effective tax rate in 2011 was 0.05%. To put that in perspective, It means that for every million euro in profits, it paid just 500 euros in taxes. This effective tax rate dropped further to as little as 0.005% in 2014, which means that even less was paid in taxes, it was 50 euros per million in profits. Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland, good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, It it sounds as amazing as it ever did to just pay 50 euro in tax on a a million euro worth of profits. Uh, The upshot of it was that Apple was told to pay Ireland 13.1 billion euro or 14 billion uh, with interest. Uh, It was estimated that could reach up to as much as 20 billion. Uh, Apple didn't want to pay it. Ireland didn't want it. uh, And they won an appeal. But this is now going to be finally adjudicated on. Absolutely. Uh, to me, it's one of those real moments of scandal, real scandal uh, that we find uh, in the kind of political system, if you like, uh, that we have a situation where a company can shield 110 billion euro uh, from being taxed uh, at, a, at a rate higher than 50 euro out of a million every for every million. I mean, that, that, that stuff is a joke. And it's basically a situation in which 
I think we uh, the principle about uh, uh, the tax system needing to be fair is very clear um, because in, 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 if you think of the ordinary person who has a job, listening, people listening to this program today, whatever, and they are uh, if they earn money. They have no choice. It's, it's taxed at source, and they have no choice. They can't decide that they're going to pay 50 or 500 euro to every million they earn. And they don't, I'm sure they don't earn too many millions. Yeah, sure but the bottom so. line in it is that people have to pay tax. They have to, there's a set-out regime. It's very clear, and people have no escape from it. In this context, what we have is Apple, uh, one of the biggest corporations in the world, one of the most profitable corporations in the world, and it's basically manipulating the system that we have with the with the um, help of the Irish authorities because part of the ruling turned on the Irish government the Irish Re- revenue commissioners mm. giving uh, special uh, cons- uh, consideration to Apple's request uh, for special treatment and they got it and that was kind of secretly done it wasn't in the public arena other com- other corporates didn't know about it but the bottom line in it is the same revenue commission would give no no leeway whatsoever. I think I should probably correct you, if you don't mind, because you said it has to be fair. Uh, I'm not sure if it does have to be fair. I think it has to be legal. Uh, and there, there, therein lies the big question, because this was appealed by Apple and the Irish government to the EU General Court, and it quashed that decision. Uh, that is, that's absolutely correct, and you're, you are right in your comments about me. What I was saying is, I, I, I'm saying it ought to be fair, I suppose. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm absolutely agreeing mm. with you that it's not fair, or agreeing with anybody who's saying it's not yeah. fair. And I, <clears throat> that the, the court ruling is interesting in that it basically was using what uh, the revenue commissioners had done uh, to legitimate, in a way, what uh, Apple had done. The problem I have with that is you have the revenue commissioners uh, sort of uh, behind the back door doing a deal with one of the richest corporations in the world to more or less allow them to pay next to nothing on tax on on 110 billion euro of profit that they had made outside the United States. And on the, the, the other side, the same revenue commissioners will hound and pursue uh, people uh, in 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 our uh, ordinary um, PAYE taxpayers to pay their actual money. There is a, yep. a, there is a rate of twelve and a half percent, which the government uh, the uh, corporate tax rate, which the government is forever telling us that um, the the actual uh, corporations more or less pay or go very close to paying or whatever. And it's the it's the the the, the facts that came out in this particular Apple case give the lie to that. They show quite clear that there are special, like there's one law for the ordinary person and there's another law uh, for, the, for the billionaires, basically. Yeah, and and I, I hope I, I'm only emphasising that point by saying it doesn't have to be fair, it does need to be legal. And what if it turns out to be legal? Uh, many people like yourself will continue to argue that it, it's not fair. Uh, but what does it matter if it's legal? Because we're we're talking about a huge amount of money and there has to be some logic behind the government's decision not to pursue as much as 20 billion euro. I was just saying yesterday, you could build the 250,000 houses they say we need in this country and probably half a dozen hospitals on top of that and have some spare change. And have quite a bit of change, actually. 
uh, which is the kind of thing you're talking about. So it's like it's it's ridiculous that that this kind of uh, that this kind of decision. Like I I would have said at the time. I think I might have even said it on this program uh, that the government's decision to actually put a, a motion through the Doyle. Uh, I think it was a motion that they, they put through. They got they got an, a Doyle majority anyway in 2016 uh, not to not to pursue uh, Apple but to actually support Apple uh, in basically saying that this uh, this money should not be claimed uh, and that it shouldn't have been claimed that, that they were basically saying or we were basically saying uh, that the European Commission was wrong that Margaret Vestager was basically going beyond her her power as a commissioner uh, in what she had done but the bottom line for me is that um, this is a patently clear case of a situation where people with huge amounts of money were getting away with paying next to no tax on it. I think at the end of the day, uh, a very simple principle to have is that those who have more should pay more. Those who have less should pay less. Now, um, they might, uh, the Apple might even at 500 because they were earning so much, or their, their profits were so much, they might have wound up paying more tax than, I, than the average mm. person because even though they were only paying 500 euro out of every million. The bottom line for me is I think 12 and a half percent. 50 euro, sorry, 50 euro out of every million. It's, it's mad stuff like uh, that, that, that's, that's 50 euro or 500. Um, like the, 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 that's crazy stuff. You should actually be, and the government should have a situation where there is no loopholes for corporates to be paying less than they're supposed to be paying. That was why well, we were proposing, and, and in fairness, the, the, the OECD has adopted the idea that we've been proposing for years that there should be a minimum effective corporate tax rate. That is, that there should be a minimum rate below which, the, no matter what the breaks were, a corporation could not go. And we had proposed 10 percent as the kind of standard that should be uh, adopted in that case. That would still allow governments to give breaks and uh, below 12.5 percent or whatever. But that, mm. no matter what happened, Apple should have had to pay, as far as we were concerned, 10 um, percent of that. Instead of that, of that situation. Billion. That's 10 percent of 110 billion. Yeah, and uh, and what does that work out? Eleven, 11 billion. Now, eleven they billion. It, they would have paid it back then, rather than having to pay it with the with the um, the money, the, what you call it, the, the interest and so on. Yeah, instead so, of effectively nothing. Yeah, precisely. In effect, in fact, like they basically wound up paying nothing so far. Now, the the, the money is in an escrow account, um, and uh, it's waiting there, uh, like for the decision. And if the decision goes against um, Ireland or it goes against the European Commission, then the money will all go back to 13 billion back to Apple, and uh, there'll be there there won't be that'll be the end of the case. Like on, mm. I, I, what I'm looking at here is a situation where Ireland is in in dire straits because it's unable despite a very thriving economy and being one of the best performers on, in, or in yeah. the economic context in so way we are facing serious problems on social housing because we are mm-hmm. simply not at the races despite what the, 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 was it the issue of Titan Tarnished maybe they said this mm-hmm. morning on national radio um, he was talking about uh, that you know we're, we've turned the corner we haven't turned the corner whatever no way and in, in, in reality uh, we've, we've got people we've people heading into uh, homelessness within a matter of weeks or months and the bottom line in it is even if the government were to achieve all its targets on housing uh, the the actual uh, reality is that we'd still have a huge housing crisis even if they met their all their total targets okay well i think all of this 
I'm sorry, Sean. I'm, just, uh, I, I, I'm out of time, uh, but maybe uh, we'll conclude on a question which I think all of this poses, which is, uh, you've just said there that uh, Apple was told to, to pay this $14 billion to the Irish state. Uh, if the Irish state is successful in its legal action, the money will all go back to Apple mm-hmm. and the Irish state, the Irish government will be delighted with that. The question, I think, is if uh, the people will be delighted as well. But we leave it on that question, Sean, and thank you indeed for okay. joining us. So and maybe people would like to answer that question on our phone, 0419832000, text or WhatsApp, 0861800658, email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, as you'd have heard on LMFM's news uh, this morning, a woman in her 70s has died in a house fire in Bachelor's Walk in Dundalk. Uh, the Chief Fire Officer with uh, Louth County Fire and Rescue Services, Eamon Wolf, is on the line. Good morning, Eamon, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, this is uh, obviously a, a very tragic story. What more can you tell us about it? Hello, Michael. Uh, I'd, I'd firstly like to extend my condolences to the um, the family and relations of that woman who died in the fire in Dundalk last night. Uh, that's, that's the first thing. Um, I the, the fire brigade. Um, we got uh, a call was received at about ten to eleven last night to uh, a fire and ter- it was a terrace house in Bachelor's Walk. Um, it was a large fire when the. Uh, fire crews arrived. Um, there were a total of three fire tenders in attendance, two from Dundalk and uh, one from RD. Um, and it was, it, we, we got a report that there was an occupant in the house. Uh, so there were multiple uh, breeding apparatus teams entered the house, fought the fire and tried to locate the occupant. Uh, and after a while, the occupant was located, but was, was deceased. Um, and uh, the, the the crews continued to fight the fire, and it was extinguished at about um, half past midnight, about 12.30. Um, and uh, there were also some spread to one adjoining house, and that had to be contained as well. Uh, but, yeah, it was a very tragic incident. It was terrible, terrible um, for this to happen. Uh, it was a very large fire, though, and... Um, Unfortunately, the, the the lady was deceased. Um, the uh, the national ambulance service and the guards uh, were also in attendance. Um, obviously, uh, the guards uh, forensics units uh, would be investigating the incident. Uh, I think that may even be ongoing. Okay, uh, it must have been a, a very large fire, as you say. It took an hour and a half. Uh, before you managed to to put it out, uh, it was yeah, it was well, very main, traumatic as well for the neighbours on uh, on uh, trying to locate the uh, the casualty, uh, but yeah. also keeping the fire under control. That was the main focus, and um, you know, as I say, there were. Uh, multiple breeding apparatus teams were doing that. Sure. Very, very traumatic uh, night, I'm sure, for the neighbours uh, uh, as well as your crew yes, members, yes. Uh, undoubtedly. Uh, did the call come from a, a neighbour? Uh, it would have, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it was, uh, you know, there were obviously there will be quite a few neighbours uh, and it was a terrace uh, street of terrace houses so there would be quite a few neighbours even at the, at the scene um, there was one neighbour had even been talking to this lady at only 9 o'clock you know it was 
terrible, terrible now. Right, okay, and undoubtedly some of the neighbours needed to evacuate uh, as well. Will they be able to return indeed, to their home? Indeed, um, immediately adjacent to the house, the two houses immediately terraced adjacent to this house uh, were evacuated, uh, but there was no major fire spread. There was just um, smoke and a small amount of um, scorching of uh, floor timbers up on, the f- up on the first floor of one of the houses, but that was kept under control. Okay, the cause of the fire is not known as yet. The cause of the fire wouldn't be known. Um, the uh, the guards would be investigating that. Okay, well, it really is tragic, uh, very traumatic uh, for the neighbours. Uh, our sympathy, indeed, Absolutely. to them yes, and yes. to the family of uh, that lady who has lost Horrible. her life. Yeah, and uh, yeah, condolences to, to that lady's uh, family and relations. Absolutely. Eamon, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. That's Eamon Wolf, Chief Fire Officer with uh, the Louth County Fire and Rescue Services. Now let's turn to a report that has been published today by Friends of the Earth, which takes a, a look at uh, the government's policy on climate energy uh, and indeed how they plan to combat Uh, energy prices and our reliance on fossil fuels. Let's speak to Claire O'Connor, who's uh, the Energy Policy Officer with Friends of the Earth. And a very good morning to you, Claire, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, We're told that we can't uh, afford the cost of fuel. We should retrofit our homes. Uh, But for a long time, people have been saying that they can't uh, afford to do that. Uh, And you're making some 49 recommendations to the government. Yes, we are. So our our report and our recommendations are based on input from 32 Irish experts across housing, poverty, climate and energy. And it's a really detailed analysis on the state policies and the measures um, that the government have taken so far to address energy bills uh, and energy poverty and also to bring down emissions. Um, And really what the report finds is that the measures that have been announced in the Climate Action Plan and the measures announced in the Energy Poverty Action Plan fundamentally just don't go far enough to protect households from rising energy bills and reducing emissions at the same time. So we're seeing things like the short-term relief on energy bills, but it doesn't, and it, it goes um, a certain distance to, to help people um, short-term, but it really doesn't address the root causes of energy poverty, um, which is ultimately inadequate and really low incomes. It's um, poor quality housing and it's also high energy costs that are a result of our reliance on fossil fuels. Um, So, yeah, we've put forward then 49 specific recommendations and actions that the government can take right now to respond to these rising energy bills and to get our homes off fossil fuels for good. One of the recommendations that you're making, which I I thought was very interesting, was uh, to increase social welfare rates by at least €20. Will that not result in households spending another €20 on fossil fuels? Yeah, that's a good question because, well, I suppose we, we're focusing on bringing people's incomes up because people who can't pay their energy bills aren't in a position to invest in expensive retrofitting measures. And that's really what it comes down to. We need to make sure that people have adequate incomes, but we also need to make sure that they have access to retrofitting and those longer term energy efficiency and measures. So we really want to see the government scale up investment in state led retrofitting programmes such as the free energy upgrade scheme that they have for people who are receiving those social welfare payments, they really need to make sure that the SAR are actually like going out to people who are really struggling because otherwise they're just expecting people to kind of apply for these on a first-come, first-served basis and it's not actually prioritising the people who are struggling the most. And that's really what they need to do. They need mm. to have people 
community energy advisors on the ground in every single local authority around the country actually identifying who needs these retrofitting measures and making sure that they have a helping hand in actually getting this done because yeah, if you can't pay your energy bills, you're not you might not be in a position to actually go out and get this information yourself as well. Um as well as that we really need to see uh, tenants who are renting from in the private rental sector targeted in these retrofitting schemes. At the moment there's not really anything there for them at all. And if you're renting from a private landlord, you don't have the agency or the control to to or on what level of insulation you have in your home. So your energy bills are going up. You don't have that control over say, adding attic or cavity wall insulation in your home. What we need to see from the government is actual regulation and protection from tenants. The regulation that actually gets landlords to increase the the BER of their property. It's been done over in the UK. But we also need to make sure that tenants are protected while this is done as well. well But there there will be an obligation on landlords to do that in the coming years, won't there? There will be. It's, it's been announced in the Housing for All strategy. Now, it was announced mm. a couple of years ago, but we haven't heard any further talk. And really, the government needs to be sending those signals to landlords right now if this is what they're intending to do. And they just haven't, there hasn't been any talk of that. So they really need to do that. But they also need to focus mm. on tenants who are in social housing as well, because the government has control over retrofitting these homes. You know, they, they've said they're going to try and retrofit half a million homes by 2030. Only 36,000 of those are actually local authority-owned social housing units. And Mm. these are households who are particularly at risk of energy poverty and would really be struggling um, in the current energy crisis. So the government, we think the government and what our report shows and what these experts are saying is the government needs to ensure that all social housing is retrofitted to a B2 standard um, and to get us off, like to reduce our need for energy um, and reduce our need for fossil fuels and to move over to uh, zero carbon heating solutions as well. I'm sure you could understand why the government might be hesitant in obligating landlords to bring other properties to a B2 standard because if landlords can't afford to do that because it is a long-term investment, is it not? If they can't afford to do it now, uh, well, they may be very well tempted to sell up in the middle of a housing crisis. Yeah, it's it's understandable that they would be cautious around this, but ultimately these minimum energy performance standards are actually coming in through the EU anyway in the coming years. There's going to be minimum energy performance standards across all housing tenures. It just went through the European Parliament yesterday um, and was voted on. So from 2030 onwards, there's going to be a minimum energy performance standards for all housing. So it's really, it's in the pipeline anyway. Um, if they don't do it, are we just going to have a really low quality housing stock for the private rental sector and leave tenants mm. exposed to rising energy costs? Because I don't think we ultimately can do something has to be done about it. OK, uh, there's uh, another issue, uh, I, I think, um, because you say that the government's targets are not ambitious enough. Uh, they may be under ambitious, but as they stand, are, are they realistic? Are they I going to achieve their targets? I think that's a good question. And I think if they achieve their targets, it will have been the biggest infrastructure project in the history of the state. And I think that's what, what we're saying. We, we need to see ramped up action across all government departments. We need to see the Department of Climate and the Department of Housing and the SEAI really working together and prioritising this and actively making sure that everyone knows that this is where this is the direction we're going and that we need to retrofit half a million homes by 2030. They have legally binding emissions reductions targets. They've um, committed to reducing emissions, having emissions by 2030. Mm. These are legally binding. So it, it has to be done now. And we've set out these 40, 49 recommendations on actions that they can take right now 
to actually make this happen and make it realistic because they don't really have a choice now. It has to be done. And would it be more realistic to offer people the opportunity to improve uh, how energy efficient their homes are, regardless of whether it was with all of the bells and whistles? Because the SEAI approach seems to be for an all or nothing uh, approach. And quite often you hear people complain that the cost of a heat pump uh, is not viable. Uh, and they don't feel that they need one or that, in fact, one wouldn't be suitable for the type of terraced house that they're living in, for example. Yeah, and I think ultimately these are details that really need to be ironed out by the government. And you're right, there hasn't been enough attention to detail paid to these retrofitting schemes to date. And this is why we need people on the ground understanding what these issues are that people are having. Um, What we've been calling for for the past year is that the government increase um, funding for those kind of low-hassle, low-cost that initial step into retrofitting, such as your uh, attic and cavity wall insulation. There's currently 80% grants, but we think that that should be raised to free free attic and cavity wall insulation for anyone who's at risk of energy poverty. And they're the first step that you can take to start to bring down your energy bills and to start to retrofitting. But you're right, it is a really big issue that people who can't pay their energy bills can't afford for this whole wraparound retrofit service to get that up to a B2. So it needs to be done in in stage and they need to make it that much more much easier for, for everyone to access Okay, we have to leave it there Claire, but thank you indeed for joining us this morning Claire O'Connor is uh, the Energy Policy Officer for Friends of the Earth Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now this Sunday, as you probably know, is Mother's Day. Uh, if you weren't aware, you probably should be getting your act together at this stage. It's a, an opportunity for everybody to celebrate uh, their mothers if uh, they are still with you. But it, it can be uh, a difficult day. This is being highlighted by the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. Indeed, it, it can be an emotional day for people whose mothers are living with dementia. Maeve Montgomery is the dementia advisor for Louth with the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Maeve, and thank you indeed for joining us. I'm sure it can be difficult and it can be emotional, as you say, but you're also encouraging people to celebrate Mother's Day with Absolutely. their mothers there. Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you for having me on. Uh, we just feel in the ASI that, you know, Mother's Day is... A, it's a day that brings a lot of uh, emotion and um, love and happiness as well. Um, so we'd like to just reach out to all those people who are looking after their mothers who may have a diagnosis of dementia or they may even be worried that the parent is showing signs of having uh, some cognitive problems to reach out to us because we are here. And I'm the Dementia Advisor for Loud, as you say, um, we have a dementia advisor now in every county. So for other counties that might be tuning in to you, uh, if you look up our website, you'll find the relevant dementia advisor. And all you have to do is make a call. You can phone us or you could phone our helpline, which is 1800 341 for support and information. And we'd like to just reach out to you and say, look, we know that this can be a difficult time for you. But we'd like you to celebrate it. We'd like to support you. And we're here for you to answer your questions um, and maybe point you in the right direction. 
And I'm sure all of the mothers in the country will enjoy a bit of pampering on Sunday, including oh, mothers yeah. with dementia. And a lot of people may feel that they don't recognise their mother and that she's not the woman that she once was. Mm-hmm. But realistically speaking, it's just another phase in that person's life, isn't it? Yes. This is a progressive brain disease and it, it creates changes in the person. But we always say the person is still there and every person is unique in their own right. This is your mum. Uh, you know, my, I've lost my mum, uh, gosh, 21 years ago, 23 years ago maybe, <laughs> 23 years ago. She didn't have dementia, but I was lucky in that respect. But I still miss her. I think of her regularly. Uh, coming up to Mother's Day, I think of her. I'm looking forward to being pampered myself. <laughs> I'm, I'm hopeful. We have a strong connection with our mothers at, at certain times. Um, the day we give birth to our own children, we think of our mother. On Mother's Day, people do think of their mothers. The other side of that is there may be mothers out there who have a diagnosis and haven't told their children. Right. And they're trying to... And what I often hear in my work would be things like, um, oh, they have their own lives. I don't Mm. want to be a burden. I don't want to create a problem. They have so much, they're so busy, and people are so busy. People's lives are extremely busy, but that doesn't mean they won't have time for their mother. So we have two sides of the coin. We have maybe children, adult children looking after a parent who has dementia, or we have mothers who don't want to burden their children by telling them. And I'm sure those mothers would also tell you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, I'm sure those mothers would also tell you that they don't want to worry their children. Absolutely. The natural thing for a mother is to protect her chicks. We protect our children. And a lot of, I come across it a lot, a lot, with mothers Mm. in particular saying, I don't want to worry them. I don't want, how am I going to tell them? Yeah. You know? And you uh, offer and great help too, people. Do Are people aware of the help that is available? Well, that's why we're trying to highlight it, really. Yeah. Um, I think there are, certainly the services are aware that we're here. But we want to let people know that we are here. And it's just a case of, of making a call or sending an email. Um, we have a national helpline uh, that you can ring and they'll signpost you to the relevant person, which would be in Louth, it would be me. Um, mm. And I can give you my telephone number. And you can just, you literally, all you have to do is ring up. You don't have to go through any, anybody else. You don't have to get referrals from GPs or anything like that. You can directly contact the dementia advisor yourself. You know, you can get referrals through, you know, services as well. But you could just ring up yourself and make mm-hmm. contact and just say, you know, it, it helps. It helps to know that there are services there that may help you. And you don't have to have them if you don't want to. But something like a support group might be a help. We have family okay. carer training that may be helpful to you. Mm. Um, we have information that may be helpful to you. We have a website that you can go on to, and it's a mine of information. We have okay. services there that will help people and support people. All right. Well, alzheimer.ie is the website. There's also information yes. on Mother's Day on your website. Your free telephone number is one 800 That's open from 10 to 5 weekdays till 4 on a Saturday. And helpline at alzheimer.ie is the email address. We have to leave it there. And uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Maeve Montgomery, Dementia Advisor for Louth with uh, the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. Maggie McGuire researched today. Chris Murray was in the 
control tower. I'm not sure where I was, but we'll all be back with you again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.